Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today, we are honored to have as our guest, Justice Ann Timmer, who is Vice Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Arizona. She has been on the Arizona Supreme Court since 2012. Before then, she was a judge on the Arizona Court of Appeals for three years, its chief judge. She also chairs the court's Attorney Regulation Advisory Committee, is a member of the National Conference of Bar Examiners Board of Trustees, and has been elected a member of the American Law Institute. She is with us today to discuss her role as chair of the Task Force on Legal Services of the Arizona Supreme Court, whose recommendations were adopted by the Arizona Supreme Court on August 27th, 2020, to go into effect January 1st, 2021. The most interesting of those recommendations are recommendations involving opening up the door to new forms of equity financing for lawyers and law firms and creating a new kind of legal professional, legal paraprofessionals to deal with specific and limited areas of legal needs. Justice Timmer, as I said, we're honored and so pleased and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, tell us about the beginnings of the task force on legal services. The appointments were made by the, by the Supreme Court of Arizona following a direction from its former chief justice. What was the task force and why was it created? Well, the, the, the task force really had its beginnings in, frankly, just a discussion between the then chief justice, Scott Bales, and I. We were at a conference and there was a presentation about the uh, continuing inability for lawyers to fulfill the need that people have uh, for civil justice. And it's, it's a problem that courts all over the nation and, and lawyers have been very well aware of and have tried to address in a myriad of ways um, throughout the years. For example, uh, having, having that gap filled by pro bono. And lawyers have really stepped up to the plate and done a marvelous job in that area. Some states, including our own, will offer uh, if you do pro bono, it will relax the requirement for CLE, for continuing legal education, that kind of thing. But even with all of those efforts, uh, it really wasn't being filled. And so I, I think that at that conference, I remember the Chief Justice and I saying, you know, look, it, it's about time to to do something different and to, and to really start looking at larger changes that might be necessary in our delivery of legal services to fill that need. And let's have a real look-see to see if some of the, the impediments that exist out there to, to delivering those services, uh, are they really necessary and are they for the benefit of the, of the uh, community that we serve? So that really, just that conversation, uh, as so often happens, was really the, the germinating seed. And I had mentioned to the Chief Justice that if he does indeed put together a task force, that that's something I would be... Uh, delighted to chair and be be a part of because that's such a, a vital need in our in our state and really in our nation. So uh, that's where it came from. And so uh, Justice Bales put together the task force. He appointed the members. As is typical in Arizona, almost all of our task forces in the courts are, are filled not only with you know different people in the court system and from different parts of the state, but they're also filled with lay people people who are the ones being served and who have really no knowledge of it. 
Uh, that's something that uh, we've always gotten a great benefit from, um, of hearing from non-lawyers and non-judges when we make decisions at, at every level. So uh, he staffed it with people just, just as I said, people from all over our state, had judges, had lawyers, had administrators, had people from the business community, uh, uh, people from the university, um, and about it, it was about 15 or so, 15 to 20 people. Well, that's very, very interesting because, you know, I think when you mentioned bringing in uh, the clients, people who were served, I think, as you've said, that we're all generally aware of the need for legal services. But the numbers that were presented, uh, it had been presented throughout the country, especially by Professor Anderson from the University of Indiana, are really striking. The, the reports are that 86% of legal matters reported by low-income Americans received no or adequate legal help. This is all part of the report that you made. And the stunning change from representation of individuals to representation of groups and so the decline in the ability to represent individuals who are strikingly unavailable to obtain legal services really is stunning. If the goal of the legal profession is to provide legal services to people, it turns out, Professor Anderson's research and others shows that, in fact, an overwhelming majority of those who need legal services, individuals, do now not, not get those services. And that, I think, was much the dramatic backdrop of, of your going forward and, and part of the report and uh, important for lawyers to understand those numbers so it's not just a general idea but the very specifics. Exactly. And as I said, I think before we started off on the task force, we didn't have the all the numbers. I think that had been made a, we'd seen it but not really uh, been brought home to bear. I don't think we've even seen Professor Henderson's report. Once we formed the task force and got started, uh, he was the very first person that we called and asked if he would come out to Arizona and give us a presentation of his materials. And he's been very generous in, in allowing us to, to uh, repeat and use part of that report in, in our own report. And, and it was striking. You're right. Uh, in terms of how the legal culture has, has changed over the years. When it used to be you would go get a will, you'd go to a lawyer, um, at maybe you know a, a sole practitioner, and he'd write you a will, and you'd pay your money, and off you go. Well, that has changed over the years, and in part with, the, with technology and, and, and forms and the legal Zooms out there and, and whatnot, uh, and we've really become, a, as Professor Henderson noted, a, a do-it-yourself culture. And so a lot of people will, will, and you can do a lot of these things for yourself. So that has minimized the number of people that, um, their potential clients in, in areas. So that has had the effect of pushing lawyers as well into more of in firms representing corporate clients uh, and rather than individuals. So as he phrases it, the people law sector has really shrunk. And so much of the of the reason for this then, and I think it's important to, to really focus on, on that need, is really the need for access to justice by individuals. That That's really a major force behind all the discussions and behind the work of the task force. The goal is to increase access to justice here. That's that's the whole purpose of this, is it not? That is the whole purpose. It has a, not the whole purpose. That's the primary purpose of, of what we were studying, uh, a secondary one, that, that I think bears mentioning is um, uh, looking at, in terms of a regulator, we're looking at is the client, is, not only is the clientele being served, but the reasons for the rules, are they necessary to fulfill that purpose? Are the rules, the ethical rules, necessary to protect the public? 
And if they're unnecessary, are we unfairly shackling lawyers, preventing them from their ability to compete with some of these other services and such, which is uh, you know harmful to lawyers? Uh, as Professor Henderson had pointed out, lawyers, a lot of lawyers aren't out there thriving. People think all lawyers are rich. That's <laughs> that's not so. He did a study from, or or I think it was he pointed out a study from Clio, which is. Uh, they, they make uh, software that a lot of solo practitioners and small firms use for billing and that kind of thing. And they had sent out a survey asking about 60,000 of their clients responded um, answering various questions that centered on how much they make, how much they bill, that kind of thing. And as it turns out, uh, mo the bottom line is that most of the lawyers, the sol solos and small practitioners, are spending most of their time scrambling to get work rather than doing actual legal work. So what they bill and collect is about 1.6 hours a day on average, uh, billing, making about $422 a day, which translates, if you have a two-week vacation, to about $105,000 a year. That's before overhead and before everything you have to pay. So there's clearly a segment of, the le of legal practitioners who are not thriving out there. Um, and so that, that was something that we were also bearing in mind as, I would say, uh, you know, a secondary purpose at, at the very least. Well, that's a very important perspective because it turns out in terms of the task force's report that increasing access to legal services, increasing access to justice, and doing it in the ways that were recommended uh, will turn out to help lawyers in legal practice uh, uh, as well. Uh, so tell us about the recommendations then the, the major recommendations of the task force. Let's start with the recommendation of the opening up of uh, law practices uh, to uh, new forms of equity financing by non-lawyers. Yeah, well, the first, that's the first recommendation was the elimination of um, Ethical Rule 5.4. And that's the rule that says that uh, you may not share uh, fees for providing legal services with a non-lawyer. And so what that means is that law firms, you can only have partners uh, be lawyers. You can't share your fees with anyone else. And so that's the, that's the rule we looked at first of should we con it continue with that rule? And as I alluded to before, we had our regulator hat on um, from a perspective of what does that rule do? Is it necessary to uh, protect the public to prevent lawyers and non-lawyers from co-owning businesses? that might provide legal services. So that's where we, we came from. And um, our first recommendation was to eliminate that rule. We concluded that uh, really that rule wasn't necessary to protect the public. Uh, whether you, I'm sure there are different academic views on this, but one that the um, task force focused on was reports of, of the origins of that rule, which originally uh, were to prevent lawyers and corporations from providing legal services. So there was, at least back in the 20s, um, according to some academicians, the view that uh, really this rule is to prevent people from outside established law firms from practicing law. And it was more of a protectionist vehicle rather than one uh, to protect. And there was no evidence that if you're in a, in a corporation or if you're you know, a lawyer in a bank providing some type of legal advice to banks' customers that there was any harm to the public, uh, it certainly was a um, means of just you know, protecting. So that's, that's the first recommendation. We thought it really wasn't necessary 
So we've proposed eliminating that, which would allow lawyers and non-lawyers to partner in providing legal services. It would also allow for passive investment uh, in law firms uh, or whatever the entity would be. Uh, in terms of what you're talking about, you know, another way to look for a perspective on this, you've mentioned its origin, is that, you know, all other service sectors uh, in the economy, if you want to start a business, uh, you're open to both debt and equity financing. Uh, and the equity financing is very important because revenue doesn't come in right away. And so you need upfront capital to begin to begin a business. For lawyers, the only source of that upfront capital under the existing rules can either be their own funds, funds from other lawyers, or debt. Uh, but there's no way for lawyers today to finance legal services in the way that all other services in the United States are financed as startups by combinations of debt and equity. So it can be looked at from an, econo from an economic standpoint as simply making consistent in terms of the opportunity of providing legal services which, as you've said, helps lawyers as well as access to justice, opening up a standard form of financing, which is equity financing, that has been barred to the legal profession until now. That It seems to me that's an, another way to look at what this opens up in terms of its opportunities. Yeah, that, it, it does. I, I hadn't really thought of it, I, I confess, in terms of putting the, the practice of law on par with, uh, with with every other profession that we have, but it, but that's 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 accurate. And there are, they say, with the advent of technology, uh, technology is great, but technology is expensive as well. And uh, to be able to compete with some of the the legal zooms, if you will, or others, some have said, well, we would like an infusion of technology, but we don't we don't really want to have to go take loans to do this. But it's different when you seek investment to be able to do that and to reach out. It's, and hopefully would be then um, a win-win for both lawyers and the public that is served. Um, one thing that I know a lot of lawyers are very concerned with, lawyers don't like change. And so when you talk about uh, ABS, well, that's a huge change. And what will that do? But we don't, we in the task force and, and then now in the court don't consider this a mutually exclusive proposition that in order to benefit the public, you have to somehow harm the legal profession. Our hope is that it it will help the legal profession thrive while simultaneously helping the public be served. Yeah, tremendously important perspective because right now, in terms of the, of the access to capital, uh, there are all sorts of contortions that lawyers are going through. I, perhaps the word contortions is not accurate, but when you describe them, you see ways to obtain access to capital. We have litigation financing in major amounts. Almost all firms carry debt, some often from banks, and often those debt instruments include restrict, include covenants in terms of how the practice must, must be done, the number of partners, the amount of revenue. So right now, lawyers find restrictions uh, in their ability to provide services to clients, and they're searching out for capital, uh, going to all these other ways, but because they have to obey uh, the, the rule before you moved on, on inability to share uh, revenue with non-lawyers, they have to do it in this very complicated way. Some, some law firms have put together structures where lawyers bill for fees, but then there's a separate organization that provides all the underlying, uh, all the underlying administrative services and charges a fee. And that fee is set at a pretty high level, so though it's not a percentage of the of the fees, it's basically a large percentage of the 
of what would be the profit of the firm. So we've seen legal structures attempting to deal with this problem, but by your opening up, by Arizona taking the lead uh, in permitting uh, this kind of equity financing, as you said, an enormously important perspective, you're making it easier for lawyers to practice law, provide legal services, and, and compete with others. Yeah, and, and that's certainly the hope. The Some of the backlash that we've, that we've heard uh, from lawyers is that if you do this, though, and, and invite this type of um, passive investment, then, of course, the investors only want to return on their, on their dollar. So there will be a threat to the independence of the lawyer in practicing because of the pressure that will exist to simply return the largest amount of profit as possible rather than possible potentially to do what you should be doing uh, for the best of the client. My response to that is that those pressures exist currently. Uh, you, as you've just pointed out, uh, with equity finance now, with, they, uh, with lenders put pressure. Uh, you, you have covenants written in these agreements, apparently. You'll have your CFOs uh, in, in large firms will, will certainly um, have a motivation to make sure that, that people are profitable. Your partners will as well. So my my point is those when those pressures exist already, the second point I typically make is that you already have ERs that take care of that ethical rules. And we've and part of the things that we've recommended in the court is adopted is to strengthen some of those ethical rules to ensure the independence of, of lawyers by um, uh, holding the non-lawyers to the lawyers' ethical responsibilities there as well. So I don't foresee, I understand the concern, but I don't foresee uh, a problem with withstanding the same types of pressures that lawyers do today. But also, as you've mentioned, uh, you can look at the at the risks. People talk about the risks of passive or non-lawyer capital, but of course, there are some different there are advantages too because outside passive capital often takes a longer view. And you're you're talking about technology. Huge investments in technology are required, but. With law firms only being partners, partnerships, and all the investment coming out of the current revenue of the existing partners, especially at a time when there's a huge amount of mobility between law firms and uncertainty about future legal practice, people are understandably unwilling uh, to take investments out of their current income when they don't know what their relationship will be in the future. Passive capital, on the other hand, looks for a longer-term return. And so it may be that bringing in passive capital, non-lawyer passive capital, to develop technology looking for a return over time rather than just instantly will bring in capital for technological advantages that the existing structure of law firms would never make. Yeah, that's, well, that's very insightful. That was one of the things that was certainly um, mentioned and discussed in our task force that right now the incentive for lawyer, for partners, uh, equity partners, is to simply... Uh, take the money because they don't know. It's difficult to say, well, we're going to build this up and in 10 years we'll start seeing, 10 or 20 years we'll start reaping some of the profits and um, that, that's uh, too long for many people, many individuals uh, so that those types of things aren't, um, aren't embarked upon but with passive investment you're more likely to have that kind of thing. And that's what we see in, in many technology firms who are willing to absorb continued investment and losses in many cases over the years because the the ultimate return is greater and also the ultimate the ultimate service is greater. But there are some other objections that people have raised uh, that we should talk about that I know the task force dealt with. 
example, the issue of confidentiality is is often raised as, as one of the concerns here. Yes, confidentiality and conflicts of interest, those are the other two major ones. And for, for that matter, again, and if you have a law, traditional law firm, is not staffed with merely lawyers. You have non-lawyer paralegals, you have secretaries, you have the file room clerks, you have all kinds of people who work there. Most lawyers, if they, you know, if you sit down and you read your ethical rules, and I'm, I'm sure it's that way in most states, you're responsible already for making sure that non-lawyers in your practice uh, uphold the ethical rules that, that you are responsible for, which include, of course, most directly, the uh, confidentiality rules. So you're already responsible for that. This now is simply adding an additional number of people uh, into the mix that you have a continuing responsibility for. Part of the structure in Arizona that we've decided upon is, is if you're going to allow these alternative business structures, one, they have to apply to a group and kind of set everything out um, uh, to make sure you're qualified to be one of these uh, structures. And uh, if approved, uh, one of the things that uh, has to happen is that a lawyer needs to be appointed as the compliance officer, so to speak, one that is responsible for ensuring that the policies are in effect and that the, the lawyers, and of course, and the non-lawyers, which would even include traditional folks, uh, paralegals, and et cetera, uh, are advised of the ethical responsibilities and the consequences for breaching those. So, uh, again, that we've actually strengthened in our recommendations some of the rules that would ensure compliance. Well, tremendously important, too, tremendously important points. One, of course, in terms of confidentiality now, there are all sorts of people that the uh, uh, come across confidential information that are not lawyers, classic mm -hmm. of the people in, in the fax room, in which faxes come into the firm, and, and everyone there in the fax room uh, has some access uh, and view of that. But the other very important point you're making, which I think is critical to understand what Arizona is doing and has done elsewhere, is that really these alternative business structures will have their own regulatory mechanism. This mirrors very much what has happened in England and Wales where England and Wales has, as a matter of fact, taken the lead on, on the opportunity for alternative business structures. So there are models in history here, but people who want to passively invest it form a new entity that will provide legal services with non-lawyer investors will have to go into a regulatory regime involving the alternative business structures that, that Arizona uh, will run. Is, is that, That's part of what's going to happen here, isn't it? Yes. Now, to me, that was a very important aspect that we didn't simply want to, okay, we're going to eliminate 5.4 and then just, you know, let, let everybody, you know, throw open the doors and do what you want. That's not what we're um, about. What we set, have set up is a, in, our, in the process of setting up, as you, as you said earlier, we, the court unanimously, in fact, uh, voted to approve this measure back in um, just a couple of weeks ago in late August, and it will be effective January 1st. Meanwhile, we're still building out what will appear in our um, judicial code, uh, how it will work, the details. And the details that we're working on are having a this regula regulation of the entity itself. So right now, we don't we regulate lawyers, not law firms. But if you're going to be an alternative business structure, there will be regulation imposed on that structure. So we will have, for example, just to quickly run you through it, a, a, a group who is um, who um, goes through and vets these 
these uh, applications that will reveal do you have you know an ownership. We want to know well who are these people, and if there's a background like you're a disbarred lawyer or a suspended lawyer, uh, or you never could pass character and fitness that kind of thing. Well you you know you're not going to be allowed to be have the uh, an interest in um, sharing fees and one of these things. So some of those types of rules, that's what we're, we're looking at to kind of um, protect the public. Uh, after that, there are ethical rules for that we're building out for the entity itself that it will have to follow. And there's a discipline system as well. So that would impact not only the, the individuals, but the, the firm itself. So of course, the harshest one would be, I suppose, uh, pulling, the, pulling the certification to, to be allowed to practice. But from down from there, you can have suspension, you could have um, a, a fine, um, because when you're talking about some, with some entities, the money is, is uh, potentially huge, so you want to have, have a big enough stick in case things really do go, go awry in situations. So that's the kind of thing that we're building uh, out to be able to regulate those entities. And as you say, England and Wales have done it. We contact, we've contacted and, and spoken several times and had a presentation from the folks back there about how precisely that the system has worked and what they're doing, what, what, the, the, what they've learned and what they could pass on to us uh, to avoid um, and to adopt. And so we've, uh, we've taken a lot, uh, a lot from them in building out our own system. And also, it's very interesting when you talk about this, because right now, uh, it is individual lawyers that are regulated by the courts and, and the relevant bar associations. So uh, law firms themselves are not. So individual lawyers may be sanctioned. But if there were problems in the management of the law firm in, in permitting uh, conduct that is otherwise regulated, it's not the firms that are affected and regulated. But if for the alternative business structure, it's the new structure that will be that will be regulated. So in one sense, who may say that gives an additional or at least a different and additional kind of protection for the public in terms of the entities uh, that they deal with. We, we have been talking about the first of the major recommendations of, of the Task Force on Legal Services of the Arizona Supreme Court involving additional and new forms of equity financing for lawyers and law firms. Before we return, we'll break because we want you to hear about how you may obtain MCLE credit uh, for listening uh, to this podcast. And then we will return and talk about the additional recommendations of the task force. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. We are now back uh, after talking about the first of the major recommendations of the Arizona Task Force on new forms of equity financing. But there are among the recommendations, a second one that has gotten a large amount of comment, uh, as well as discussions of the need for it. And that is the creation of a new form of individual legal provider, the legal paraprofessional who, who would uh, be certified in effect uh, to perform a limited uh, and specific number of legal services. Can you tell us about that recommendation as well? 
Yes, that's a, well, as you say, to add a new tier of legal service provider, uh, we will call them legal paraprofessionals, and I can't even tell you how long it took us to come up with that name. There was a large debate on what do you call this, this person. But the idea is, a, is someone, in addition to a lawyer, who can provide a limited amount of legal advice to a client and even go into court on some limited matters. Now, in Arizona, I don't know about in other states, but in Arizona, we've had for the last 15 years what think of, I think the, the bottom of the pyramid, something called a, a legal document preparer who uh, the Supreme Court licenses and certifies. That person is allowed to help people fill out forms. They're not allowed to give advice, simply fill out forms. Uh, so that's kind of the, the bottom there. But as they've reported for years, but of course people are always expecting and wanting, well, what should I do? Should I get a form for a conservatorship or is it a guardianship I need if I need to handle the money of, of the person I'm looking to protect? And the legal document preparer can't answer that question. Uh, and the person maybe can't afford to go, to go to a lawyer or doesn't go to a lawyer. So uh, this new tier would be entitled to answer those kinds of questions in limited areas. Where we were looking for is not to displace lawyers. Where we were looking for is to identify an area or areas where you just don't see lawyers. And it turns out that there are areas where you, you really don't see many lawyers filling the need that people have for, for whatever reason. Usually it's because of economic reasons. Either the, the lawyers just stop. I don't want to blame lawyers, make it sound like they charge too much, but, but the fees are high for a lot of people, for individuals to pay. Uh, it's difficult to, to get help. So through the reports, Henderson's and others, and even local in Arizona, uh, we know that in some areas, uh, individuals are not able to afford legal advice, yet could really benefit from having some. Uh, also, the courts were reporting to us that they're getting a lot of propers in particular areas where it would be beneficial if somebody could just have given them just a little legal advice or just a little help. It would also not plug up the courts so much with, with being able to help these people get these, these matters resolved. So the recommendation is to have this new tier, and the task force didn't get into the areas that recommended a, another group be, be uh, appointed, which has been appointed, to identify, well, what are those areas? And then what should um, be required? So we're looking at subject matter areas where someone could demonstrate that they have the training, pass a test, uh, be certified by the court, to offer advice in that limited area, uh, be subject to, again, ethical rules, discipline system, really just paralleling what we do with lawyers now. They would also be a part of our state bar association as well. Well, one of the things that's interesting is the comparison to other professions, especially the medical profession. I mean, the medical profession and the legal profession have gone down two completely different routes on this. Uh, the per capita number of doctors in the United States doesn't change dramatically as the population increases, uh, though it does increase. But nevertheless, the medical profession has come to rely on a large number of people, not certified as doctors, but who perform essential services that doctors may not be necessary for. Not simply nurse practitioners, but you know, it's not only doctors who can draw blood, and doctors don't have to be in the room when blood is drawn or... or uh, 
uh, other other measurements and other things are done. So there's this whole realm of practitioners in the medical area, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, people in hospitals, who do all sorts of things that don't require the full range of medical skill. In the law, we require for someone to give an advice to someone on a landlord-tenant dispute or a domestic abuse dispute, they have to have passed tests that certify them to argue in the Supreme Court of the United States, handle bankruptcies, and handle major securities offerings. You have to be the highest quality professional to perform any legal services. In other words, in the law, we have required you must be able to do everything in order to do anything. And that is a different model than the, than the medical profession uh, as used. And that really is what is being opened up here. Are there a range of advice in particular areas, landlord, tenant, domestic abuse, for example, where people can be trained and certified to perform that services without having to be qualified to argue in the Supreme Court of the United States? Yes, that's exactly right. And, and you mentioned the medical profession, because that is what we were thinking about quite a bit. In fact, one of the people that I, uh, I asked the Park Chief Justice to make sure they point someone to the task force that is from the medical profession and that has had some of this experience in having different, different people be able to deliver medical services. So yes, we were thinking along those lines and benefited from hearing the experience of, of what happened 50, 60 years ago when the idea of phlebotomists were first, uh, first proposed or nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, and the, and the, and the medical profession was, uh, was against it, a lot of people. Because they thought, no, you know, again, it's change, <laughs> and you need a doctor to do all this. Well, now, of course, people have come around. Doctors have like, you know, this is great. They can they can focus their skill set on who really needs a doctor versus uh, drawing blood or or maybe giving flu shots or or, or whatnot. Uh, and that's what we're looking at. So the areas that we've identified that you don't see, you don't need a lawyer, but you don't see lawyers. Uh, some. Uh, administrative type type um, disputes, some landlord tenant. Uh, you see some lawyers there, obviously. Family law is a big one. We do see lawyers there, but for example, in Maricopa County, which is the Phoenix area in Arizona, uh, we know that in more than ninety percent of the cases in the family law courts here, you have at least one unrepresented party, and in something around seventy-seven percent of the cases, both parties are unrepresented. So the lawyers aren't feeling, feeling the need there. But if you have someone trained in simply in that area um, who can assist with family law uh, advice, and then when, and when needs be ethically, you have to go to a lawyer when it goes over their skill set, um, then that would, the feeling of a task force in the court is that would be uh, advantageous to all. So those are some of the areas. Now, that's very much the medical model. I mean, nurse practitioners and others are trained. They can perform the services they do. But one of the important points of the training is if something occurs that requires the skill set of the doctor, or just as the person uh, helping in, in domestic abuse requires the skill services of the lawyer, uh, th that changes at that point. People understand not only what they can do, but their limitations as well. And in the meantime, these enormously underserved areas uh, get access to illegal mm -hmm. services. Yes, and I know a lot of family law practitioners uh, in, in Arizona feel threatened by this. Uh, I've told them, well, you know, this is also an opportunity for you to expand your own practice. 
because imagine if you employed a couple of people who are licensed to be this uh, legal paraprofessional to work on a case that really doesn't require your skill set, uh, but you could deploy to represent more people for your own practice, and then as needs be, um, you know, you could be brought in for when your skills are necessary. I mean, it would, it, that really does model along your typical doctor's office these days where you have all kinds of people employed. Of course, it's not only we talked about domestic abuse, but one current area that has received a great deal of attention, not only in Arizona, but across the country, has been the enormous need that is developing in the landlord-tenant area. I mean, simply figuring out uh, what all these various moratoria mean in terms of collecting rent and what the legal position of the tenant may be and ultimately having to deal with unlawful detainer actions, an enormous need, and yet it is widely recognized that it's probable that over 90% of that need in terms of giving advice to tenants is not being met. And uh, so people are being thrown in the pool, so to speak, to do what they can because of the lack of, of, of legal advice that the current structure prevents. Is that one of the areas that, that you would look at in terms of uh, creating a uh, legal paraprofessional to work in that area? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And one, one of the things, in fact, we had some landlord-tenant lawyers come and, and speak to us, and, and what's pretty plain is that once you get to uh, an eviction proceeding, once you get to court, it's pretty well done. You're done. <laughs> it's, there's really not a lot of wiggle room, the way the rules are, the laws are written. Um, it's really the, the advice that needs to be given to tenants are, is, is before you reach that point of, of, of evictions. So, but there, and there really aren't many people out there to kind of give that legal advice or to attempt to negotiate with something with a landlord, for example, to um, avoid evictions. So that's a, that's a huge unmet need, and that is one of the, the areas that we've identified. And of course, when you look at unmet needs, I mean, I was so struck during the uh, the great uh, economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 which ultimately involved so many home foreclosures uh, that the number of people who took out uh, loans, the number of borrowers who then lost their homes because of provisions in the loan documents that they may not have understood was just enormous. And the, the failure was that almost no one, almost no borrower in an ordinary home transaction thought or did call a lawyer to ask to review the documents because the assumption is that the cost of the lawyer would be so extreme uh, that it simply uh, couldn't be done. So we've been through a cycle where large numbers of people not having uh, legal advice have caused real harm. Now we're in this landlord, uh, this landlord-tenant uh, issue. Uh, and, and so talk about... In the landlord-tenant area, for example, what would the le- in terms of what may develop, the legal paraprofessional, would it simply be giving advice outside of court, or could the legal paraprofessional appear in court uh, if it went to a court hearing to deal with some of the clear issues? Uh, it would be both. They could give advice, and they could go into court. So that would mean that in the courts, which are now clogged from a judicial standpoint, every judge and, and every report says that, that uh, parties appearing themselves, pro se, uh, cause enormous difficulties in terms of calendaring because conscientious judges, and I've always had the huge respect and been amazed sitting in courtrooms, the amount of time that conscientious judges take to explain uh, to, to pro se litigants what is happening and what their rights are, an enormous effect on calendaring and not all judges 
and will tell you I, uh, that I've spoken to, and I assume it's part of what you're considering also, that the ability to have someone in court to help and to have advised the litigant beforehand will simply help with these court calendaring issues as well. Yes, I think that that is part of it, that propers, um, you know, they do they do clog up a little bit the system because they maybe they didn't bring the right documents, they didn't know to bring the documents, so they have to reschedule, uh, things like that. Is And I think I've heard judges also say that it, it's difficult for them because they're not supposed to be an advocate themselves. So it's a fine line on trying not to, well, I need to help the pro per. You're not, you're not supposed to be helping, but you also don't want to just, you know, let them flounder either. Um, that's something that can be a great frustration to, to the represented party on the other side as well. Uh, I, and I can say, I remember when I, I represented people against a pro per, I never liked it. I'd much prefer to have a lawyer on the other side uh, to, of, of the table. So I think that's, that is uh, part of it. And some people, when you go into court, you have to remember, that's a, that's a nerve-wracking experience for a lot of people. And to even uh, uh, enunciate and to get out to the, to the judge what the problem is can be very difficult. So having someone there to even say, look, here's what's going on uh, is a benefit. You know, it's interesting. We deal with this every day, and we spent our lives in the legal profession. I think we've lost, in some cases, an understanding of the simple terror that simply receiving a letter from the lawyer causes to most people. People often refer to it as a lawyer letter. And when someone who hasn't been involved in a legal dispute gets a letter from a lawyer making claims, there are, there are not many things more terrifying in terms of receiving correspondence than that. And in many ways, I think we've become so familiar in our own lives with what happens that we maybe have, have blocked out uh, some of the fear that's caused by people who, for the only time in their life, may be involved in a, in a legal proceeding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll mention, too, that, again, this is not um, new in the world, at least, having, having this new non-lawyer uh, legal service provider, a paraprofessional. Uh, we had people from Ontario come down and talk to our task force. Ontario, Canada, they've been having licensed paralegals go into court for 25, 30 years. Uh, and it's worked out very well. Uh, it's it served that, that kind of need where you're, you didn't see lawyers uh, appearing. And um, so we, we took a little bit of a lead from, from them as well. And we're gratified to see that, that, it, that it's worked. We've been talking about the two major recommendations by the Task Force on Legal Services of the Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, let's pause again for a moment uh, to hear more that we've covered this issue, but the Daily Journal regularly covers a range of news issues. Let's take a break to hear about some of the current stories that the Daily Journal is covering. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal. California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of September 8th. A ballot measure that would roll back several criminal laws is drawing opposition from many district attorneys. Proposition 20 aims to expand the list of violent felonies that have restricted early parole and recategorize certain crimes, such as vehicle theft and unlawful use of credit cards. Proponents argue the measure will close loopholes that allow dangerous criminals to be released early from prison, 
but opponents say it defeats California's focus on rehabilitation of convicted criminals. From the politicization of coronavirus safety measures to the divisive conversations on race and social justice sparked by George Floyd's death, the cultural storm of 2020 has employers wondering, what can they do about employee conduct outside of work hours? For example, if an employee posts photos of themselves violating health ordinances, can an employer tell them to stay home from work? And do they have to pay them? Experts say those questions don't have a clear answer yet, and that these issues will linger long after COVID-19 is over. Judges across the country have thrown out business interruption cases related to the pandemic shutdowns. It's good news for the insurance industry, which seems to be coming out on top in what has become worldwide litigation. Most recently, a U.S. district judge for the Middle District of Florida and one in the Eastern District of Michigan both said business interruption is not covered by existing insurance policies. The questions judges are facing in this issue are what constitutes physical loss or damage, and do these insurance policies have virus exclusions? So far, more than 1,000 business interruption cases have been filed, and though insurers have taken an early lead, experts say it's far from over. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We've returned, having gone over uh, two of the major areas, but Justice Simmer, I think in terms of looking to the future, it's interesting to combine these two in a particular context. I mean, you, you spoke about the family law practitioners and your suggestion uh, that wouldn't, do, wouldn't they have opportunities if they were able to hire other paraprofessionals to help. When you put together these two recommendations of the court, the opening up to new forms of equity financing and the the change for, for legal paraprofessionals, one perspective to look at, what you're really dealing with, are two ordinary concepts of providing services, both of which apply across the board of services in the United States. Firms that provide services can get equity financing, and their human resources policy does not require that the absolutely most trained professional do everything. So if you open up what are ordinary equity financing and human resource proposals to law firms, and you look at particular areas, domestic abuse, landlord, tenant, I suppose you can look forward to a day when lawyers who want to provide these services, putting these together, could start firms with new access to capital, equity capital, access to capital, be able to hire an ordinary human resources requirements, less specially certified professionals to do a limited group of, of uh, provide a limited group of services and build major organizations that will help the law firms as well as provide access to justice to clients. When, when you put these two things together, you're really talking about the potential for great growth in law firms as well as increased access to justice. Yes, well, that's the hope. Uh, that it will do just that. Um, and we're also thinking to add to that that uh, perhaps this would be helpful for the more rural areas of the state. Arizona, as so many states, uh, California included, have a lot of r- very rural areas. We probably have maybe a little bit more remote areas where we're even uh, difficult to get decent Wi-Fi access and such, but it's certainly difficult to get a lawyer. I will give you an example. In one of our counties, Mojave County, which is, oh gosh, Upper Kingman, and you, and you have uh, Lake Havasu and that kind of thing up there, huge county, bigger than some of the states back east. Um, 
in one of the largest counties in America, there are eight lawyers who provide civil civil representation. Eight in the entire county. It's almost impossible for them to get to get people uh, apparently. So as a result, if they want legal representation, their real uh, opportunity is to come to like Phoenix, a major metropolitan area, but that's like a three to four hour drive to come down here. If you could have firms that even uh, around here or even up, up north in Mojave County or others that have technology and the ability to reach out to others or to employ people like a paraprofessional to have them in other uh, uh, little towns and such up there, uh, that will certainly increase uh, representation for the, for the community and can add to the um, profit of the law firm, if you will. One other example, just because I think you brought it up uh, before about the recession, that is a, a real-life situation that we were confronted with during the recession, in which lawyers came to the bar asking if they could be a one-stop shop for consumers who wanted to refinance their home loans or to stop foreclosures or participate in short sales, that kind of thing. And what they were proposing uh, on a few occasions was to... Uh, create partnerships with mortgage brokers and real estate agents to be part of that one-stop shop to help consumers uh, and to set up a business. So they wanted to ask, can we do that? And the answer had to be, no, you can't do that because you can't share your fees. And uh, again, is that, that uh, creating a single entity that could offer all those services may have served the consumer client's best interest, which is now the kind of thing that they're able to do. So there's all kinds of opportunities out there to innovate, ones that we can't even imagine at this point, but that is something that uh, people are good at, innovating and coming up with creative new ways to both serve the community and to make a good living for themselves. Yeah, I know it's interesting that you add the dimension of, of the, the multi-practice uh, uh, for many areas. For example, talking about the areas that lawyers have lost, we know very well in estate planning, uh, it's not telling anyone anything they don't know that major advice on estate planning that may otherwise have been at one point be thought to be included uh, in law practice is now dealt with by those who deal with obtaining uh, life insurance. Uh, tax areas uh, basically have been taken over almost entirely uh, by, by CPAs where lawyers are not involved, even when technically, if you looked at it anew, maybe tax advice was involved. So the ability to form a one-stop shop, not just in terms of helping consumers, but all clients, could actually bring lawyers back into areas that is a de facto matter, essentially, they've walked away from. Well, I, yeah, we were thinking that in terms of uh, family law, for example. Almost every family lawyer that has to do a, a, a what's called a quadro, a qualified domestic domestic relations order, which is what splits up a pension, can be very complicated. And most lawyers aren't really qualified to do it. So what they do is they hire the accountants to do it. So what what if you had an accountant and, and a lawyer partnering uh, in the same business and they could you know, just go down the hall and get this guy to do the quadro for you and consult on that? Uh, that's, uh, that's the kind of thing. Or the land use planner and the zoning lawyer who might want to um, be, share, share fees, that kind of thing. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity I think there to be one-stop shops in very discrete niche areas. 
And you mentioned that, and also you mentioned the size of Arizona in rural areas. You know, it's interesting, again, when you contrast the medicine, a great growth of telemedicine has occurred in Arizona. And one of the reasons it's incurred in Arizona is because of the need to deal with the areas, especially in dealing with the vast area of, of, the, uh, of the tribal areas. And a set telemed, one of the great areas of growth in telemedicine, uh, including telepsychiatry as well as other areas of telemedicine, has come about because of the size of Arizona and the rural population demanded it. Uh, and just as medicine has led the way in that, I think, uh, you know, you're pointing to the enormously underserved rural areas uh, which, uh, again, open up opportunities with new structures and, and new paraprofessionals uh, to provide legal services. So Arizona, uh, both in the medicine and now in, in the law, I mean, the Supreme Court of Arizona has taken a, a enormously significant step here in terms of what it's done and what you've done. And it's so interesting that it's, it's the Arizona geography as well as, as well as demographics that have really led both uh, you and the Supreme Court and the medical profession to have to change in major ways or propose changing in many major ways uh, the way practice is done. It, it actually ended up, because, there's, because we're so spread out, uh, we already had in place a number of the rural areas and the courts and such had already um, uh, doing, I guess they use Zoom or whatever, they use the equivalent of video type thing of having uh, Rule 11, mental health kind of things, evaluations done long distance uh, with with doctor and, and um, a, def a defendant, uh, that kind of thing. So we kind of had that network set up. And so when the pandemic hit, we were well prepared really to expand on that. So the court system in Arizona, uh, I, I think this contrasts to other, some other states, we never shut down. Uh, we were able to keep running, uh, even some places like in, in Mojave County, which I mentioned, had video grand juries, uh, and they've continued. And and we've uh, we've kept open, and in part because we did have that network all, uh, set up already, and have simply expanded upon it. That the reason I mention that is because it 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 certainly makes you ponder through seeing how the court system can operate like that way, and the medical community can operate that way. Why in the world can't we have a legal legal community operating in that way for clients and having things? I, I look forward to a day when you'll have a tell the law type of app on your phone or, or computer where you can get that kind of service. But that all takes tech, money and infusion of, an, of capital into setting up those kind of networks. Thank you so much, Justice Timmer. I, I think you've, you deserve, and the Supreme Court of Arizona, the state of Arizona, really deserves great credit. You've taken the first very large step here. I know other jurisdictions have taken some steps, Utah, District of Columbia, other jurisdictions are considering these steps. But what you have done really has provided a roadmap to the future. Uh, both your leadership and the Supreme Court of Arizona has shown that. And we're deeply grateful to you for having taken the time to share that with us. We're honored uh, that you came on this podcast, and we thank you very much for, for, for being with us, Justice Timmer. Well, thank you for your interest, and thanks for the interest in, in listening to some of these ideas.